Hi, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. We are on cloud nine right now because we just recorded an episode with Dave McGilvery, the race director of the Boston Marathon, and we can't wait. We're fangirling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a nice guy. Just such a fabulous, phenomenal human being. So he is great, and really, we're still on a high from talking to him. So And getting excited for Boston, which is five and a half weeks away. Yes, it is. So uh, Dave's going to be coming up next, but before that, we thought we would reintroduce ourselves to those who may have just joined our podcast. We're now in our 11th episode of the Run Farther and Faster podcast, which is a limited series focusing on the Boston Marathon, and that is why we're so excited that we were able to speak to the Boston race director. Um, my name is Julie Sapper. And I'm Lisa Reichman. And we are the co-founders of Run Farther and Faster. We are um, experienced runners ourselves, and we have collectively run the Boston Marathon 25 times. So, so we are 26 and 27. That's right. And uh, we love this race so much, even though we've run many other marathons. There's something so special about the Boston Marathon, which many call the uh, People's Olympics for good reason. Yeah, absolutely. And we look forward to it every year as our opportunity for kind of our girls weekend away, our time together. It's our it's really the highlight of our year. When we come home every year, I'm always a little disappointed we have to wait a whole year to get back to it. Same here. And we've um, fallen into a little specialty niche of helping runners qualify for Boston and train for Boston. And it's been so rewarding because we love coaching runners of all levels, but when we are able to help any runner achieve a goal, whether it's running their first marathon or qualifying for Boston, there's nothing more rewarding. And so being able to be in Boston with our runners is just so special, and we're really looking forward to that as well this year. So before we move on to Dave, how's your week going with your training? It's good. This is a cutback week for me. I'm going to be doing the Rock and Roll Half Marathon this weekend. Uh, I know you did a race last weekend as sort of a tune-up race for, for Boston. How did, how did that go? That's a pretty hilly course that you did, the rest in 10-miler. That's right. So I really wanted to do a tune-up. I wanted to do RRCA uh, two weeks ago, but I had a conflict. And I signed up for the rest in 10-miler just last weekend after learning that my daughter's dance performance would not conflict with the race time life of a mother runner. But right? it would go until way late the night before to, <laughs> right. to compromise your sleep. But that's so okay. I signed up for the rest in 10 miler like 48 hours before the race, knowing once I received her times. And I looked at the course elevation barely because I knew it would just psych me out. Because I well, we know rest in until we've run rest in before. Remember, we've run rest in before. We've run rest in before. And for those of you listening that aren't in the DC area, rest in is an area of Virginia right outside of DC, and it's beautiful and it's hilly. So uh, yeah, I was out late the night before, which is not great. However, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Getting sleep the week before any race is great. If you don't have great sleep the night before a race due to nerves, it's okay. It's not going to impact your race as much as not getting sleep the whole week before. So I kind of looked at my uh, burning the candle at both ends, going out late Saturday night, um, and then waking up early Sunday morning as the same thing. So yeah, so it, while it wasn't ideal, um, I was able to get myself out the door and out to rest in. The drive was pretty easy because it was Sunday morning. 
did a warm up of about a mile and uh, started the race. And what was interesting about this race for me was um, I noticed that my pace was a little bit all over the place initially. So like the first couple of miles, I was pretty in tune to my LT pace, which was about 7.05. And then all of a sudden, mile three, it was like 7.25. And I really tried hard because it's just a practice race to not put too much stock into that. There was a hill, but I, I just felt myself slowing down a little bit. But rather than thinking about, okay, well, this just isn't my day because I was out so late last night and that's why this is happening, I have really tried to use a lot of the tools in our toolbox from all the experts on this podcast that we've had to really sort of overcome that mental ho-hum, I'm going to just settle into this pace. And it worked. And after I saw that my mile time for, I think it was like mile three or something was a little slower, I picked it up again. And that happened a couple more times during the race, but overall I managed to sustain um, an average pace of just over 7.05 and finished in 111. I was so That's happy great. with that because not because of the time as much as the mental strength yes. of getting through that challenges, which is, and you mentioned the course is similar in topography to Boston that you started out yes. downhill, then you had some hills and then you finished net downhill. So yes. it's sort of similar. So that on a mini great. scale, but that's great. I mean, I think practicing those mental skills and I've been doing that on my training runs a lot now too, is just practicing those mental skills, which I haven't really done it focused on in the past. And I think that part is a big, that, that, benefit from doing a race can be just as big as the benefit of the physio the physiological and physical benefit of doing the race is that chance to practice the mental strategy in a race environment. So that's great. And you did great. So yeah, it was great. I also want to give a shout out to my two new friends, Christy and Hannah. They were um, two gals um, about, I would say about a minute in front of me, they were working together and I just kept my sights on them and they were the second and third women and I was the fourth and it was great to work with them. And, um, I just love it when women can collaborate and uh, help each other out. And I felt like they were really helping me out by not even realizing about maintaining a really smart pace. And I was able to keep them in my sights. And when we finished, we ended up cooling down together, which was really nice. And we all um, commiserated that there was a gentleman who uh, started out with Christine Hannah and was using his elbows to kind of make room for himself. I like to call this, excuse my French, cock blocking. It's when somebody, <laughs> it's when um, uh, a person will, uh, individual, I don't want to say male, but it, it, it generally happens with women. I when they get checked. Yes. And <laughs> when they so get this checked. I was running with this, this, at first I thought it was just his regular gait, but I was watching ahead and I saw how his gait would change when he'd get closer to them and his elbows would stick out Ooh. on either side and they'd have to sort of move a little bit. He slowed down and he ended up coming toward me. Like I actually, I, I stand corrected. I was going toward him. And so I was about to pass him up a hill and he stuck those elbows out again. And I thought to myself, all right, I mean, I don't understand why he's doing this because it doesn't matter for his placement and I'm not going to make him run any faster if he's trying to block me instead of running his own race. So he's zigzagging like and a bad little form. bit in front of me. That is his poor form. So is his elbows coming this, out? That's not going to make him any this efficient. This maybe 30 seconds, but it felt like an eternity because in my mind I'm thinking, well, what do I do? I don't want to go around him. I don't want to have this guy around me. I feel uncomfortable. So... I got up this hill and I turned to him and he had his head down. He was kind of looking at the ground and I said very nicely, you know what they say, kill him with kindness. Good job. I said, hey, <laughs> Keep it up. good job. I said, if you um, 
put your if you if you look up a little bit and not down and open your chest a little, you'll breathe a little easier up the hill. Have a good race. And I felt like that was a great way to sort of get around the situation, um, not make it feel uncomfortable. And I didn't see him the rest of the race. But Hannah and Christy had the same um, same experience. So shout out to them. And uh, yeah, that's all. never know what you're going to see no, in a race. Never know. Okay. So, anyway, so what do you have? What's your um, plan for this weekend? You're doing rock and roll and talk yep. to me about that. So rock and roll. I'm a little bit, um, we talked about this before, I'm a little bit intimidated. Uh, I got an elite entry, which is great and exciting. Uh, but they sent out the elite entry list and it is a stacked field. It's, it's amazing. And I think uh, running with people who are faster than you makes you faster. So I'm hoping that that'll give me a little inspiration. But looking at it, I got a little bit of that imposter syndrome of, wow, should I be running this race as an elite? So excited to run it as an elite, be in the elite corral with all of these really inspirational and phenomenal runners. Which so you are too. Well, but it's yeah, the names I see. It'll be, it'll be great to be up there with them. So um, I don't know what to expect. I uh, ran it last year. So my goal is always to try to run it a little faster than the year prior. So we'll see how that goes, but it'll really just depend on how I feel the weather is looking good. So like you, it's, it's not the goal race. It's the practice race to get to the goal race. So I have a little bit less pressure on it and we'll just see how it goes. But um, I, I do like these tune-up races as we get closer to Boston because it just gives us a chance to practice whether it's what we're eating, what we're wearing, the mental practice, the mental strategy. Like it gives us a chance to do that, do a dry run before race day. So speaking of which, I think this is a good time to talk about some coaching tips heading into Boston. We're five and a half weeks away. Uh, a little too close to try to make up for lost time if people feel behind. I don't think that's necessary, but still plenty of time to get in some quality, a couple quality long runs still before taper starts. Uh, getting new shoes. Yeah. Have you gotten new shoes yet? Uh, yeah, I actually did. I wear um, Mizunos, and I've been wearing for years the Wave 11s, and uh, I've been able to find them for years. Wow. <laughs> They're gone. They're extinct. And so I... Uh, the Wave Inspire, right? That's yeah, the Wave yeah, Inspire. Yep. So I moved to the, the newest model, the 15s. I tried them out for mm. the first time today. They felt great. Okay. Um, so hopefully that will continue. But yeah, this is the time for anyone in my in my shoes, no pun intended, who um, may need to upgrade a model because your model's extinct or you're looking to perhaps try a new pair of shoes. This is the time to do it, to break them in. Um, it's also a great time if you haven't been doing so to practice your nutrition. We know that some people really subscribe to the theory of um, not fueling too much during long runs um, with the idea. Fasted, fasted that, yeah, long runs, yeah. With the idea that the fuel will be extra impactful. And this is for more seasoned runners. We, we both don't do that. But for those who do, it's still important to practice um, a few long runs with fuel to make sure that your body is able to process the fuel you're selecting for race day. Yeah, you don't want any surprises on race day. Nothing Correct. new on race day. So, so get that that practice in. And and like we were saying, the the, the mental aspect of, of training and, and racing and starting to hone in on that visualization. Watch some if you haven't run Boston before. Watch some videos. Just go on YouTube and look for some Boston Marathon videos. There are plenty of videos out there that show parts or all of the Boston Marathon course and kind of get you hyped up for race day. So I think having that, being able to visualize yourself on the course, especially if you haven't been there before, you haven't been to Boston, you haven't run the run the course before, that that visualization and that mental, the mental game, starting to work on that a little bit too and, and staying healthy. So Yeah, Purell is your friend. Yeah. Um, and uh, you had mentioned a few minutes ago um, the importance of getting in some quality work. We suggest um, – 
for those who are not inclined to do speed work, we, speed work isn't for everyone who's marathon training, and that's okay. Um, even some people just do um, regular pace miles. That's okay. But one thing we really recommend everyone do to prepare for Boston is at least a few times practice running downhill. Boston has 13.1 miles of downhill. Yeah, even more really even when you put it all really, together. It's, really yeah, six, it's, it's a net it's downhill six, course. Net so downhill And course. people underestimate the impact that running downhill will have. And I, I still remember every year when we start to go back uphill, I actually look forward to it because my quads are so yeah. starting to burn. I'm like, I need to change that direction and change the muscles I use. So yeah, so if you've got hills nearby, don't focus just on the uphills, focus on the downhills, relaxing into the downhills, holding that slight forward lean, looking even down at your feet. You know, you want to watch where you're going, make sure you're not going to trip over anything. But looking, when you look down at your feet, that helps put you in that position of relaxing into the downhill. So practice. And a quick turnover. Practice those. Yeah, quick, quick turnover. turnover, just staying relaxed and not not putting on the brakes. So I know that's harder for our runners who are listening who might be in Chicago or Florida where there aren't any hills. But if you can find a, a bridge to practice on, an overpass, or if you can have access to a treadmill that does the negative incline, then you know, trying to get in some of those some of those downhill miles to get your body used to used to that impact, I think is you're right. Good idea. Yeah. So um lastly with respect to quality work, um Definitely, if you are intending on racing Boston um, versus just enjoying it, it's important to do some either a tune-up race of some distance just to have an idea of what your marathon pace is and then practicing that pace a little bit. It will always feel harder while training than on actual race day, but um, experienced marathoners know this, but it's just a reminder, your goal race pace is not the pace you want. It's where you are, Right. and, and that's super important. Winter training is tough. And uh, there, it's it's really not a reflection of your fitness. If your if your goal race pace is slower than what it was when in your qualifying marathon, it some people run better in the winter, some people run better in the summer. It's it's just how we're wired, and that's okay. But it's really important to recognize where you are in your fitness right now and practice that. So on race day, you're setting yourself up for success. Right. Set a, a reasonable goal based yes. on where you're, and it's this is a good time you're right now to figure out where is your fitness mm -hmm. and see because not much is going to change between now and race day. You're not going to cut off 10 estimated minutes from your marathon finish time in the next few weeks. So now is a good time to do a status check and go sign up for a 10K, a 10-mile or half marathon, some sort of race. If you can't get to a race, do a time trial. It's not as, I think, as accurate on your own because it's hard to be as get that adrenaline going when you're trying to do a time trial on your own, but that's another another way to do it if you don't have time to fit in a race. But a race also gives you that opportunity to practice. What am I going to eat in the morning? What am I going to wear? Depending on the weather, we know it can always change, but what am I going to wear? What's my pre-race routine? And we talked with Jen Lager about getting into a a really predictable routine. So that's a good opportunity to do that. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so the weather uh, this week has been really tough. It's been super cold, and as a result, we were supposed to uh, do a segment on News Channel 4 on Wednesday morning on getting motivated. Early to Wednesday outside. morning, yeah. And ironically, they canceled because it was too cold. Well, the is... wind chill on Wednesday morning was single digits. It was bad. And we did record. We were grateful to our wonderful runners who Thank showed you. up at 7.30 on Saturday morning to film all of the teasers and some of the filler for the for the segment. But the segment now has been rescheduled to what we hope is going to be a more mild early morning on Monday morning. So if you are local or even if not, you should be able to get it online. Tune in to 
NBC Channel 4 in the morning, and I think they'll replay it in the afternoon news too for the Get Fit for Spring segment with Molette Green. And we're going to mow, <laughs> you can get fit for spring, right? Yes, yes. So we're we are... trying to help Molette uh, embrace running. Uh, so, yeah, it should be a good time. Yeah, Thank exciting. you to all of our runners in advance who are coming out for that. Um, we're really excited. It'll be a good time. And if you're listening and you're local and you want to join us on Monday morning at 530 in Gaithersburg, we Give know us, that sounds tempting. Shoot us an email. You'll get into miles. We can get you into miles in between segment segment tapings about 5.30 to 7 a.m. So shoot us an email at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com and let us know you want to come, and we will give you the details. That's right. Um, lastly, uh, we just want to thank everyone for listening. We've received so much wonderful feedback, and if you are inclined, I know we say this a lot, it's – it's a little embarrassing. We keep having to ask, and it's not because we're trying to get you know comments. It's because the more reviews we have on iTunes, the more people will find this podcast. So if you've been listening and you're inclined, uh, shoot us a review. Um, hopefully, good. But if you have you know constructive criticism, that's totally fine. We welcome it. We're trying to get better and better each week, and we really appreciate your feedback. So uh, please head over to iTunes and review us. And uh, I think that's all we've got for this week. Let's get to Dave because this is a great one. We're excited about it, and uh, I want everyone to hear this. So let's let's turn it over to Dave. Sounds great. Have a great week, and good luck on your race, Lisa. Thanks, Julie. Bye. Bye. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast today the man behind the marathon, Dave McGilvery. Since 1988, Dave has been the technical and race director of the Boston Marathon. As such, he manages and oversees all technical and, as and operational aspects of what we know is the oldest and most prestigious marathon in the world. Dave also has his own company, DMSE Sports, which oversees hundreds of races. Dave himself is an extremely accomplished athlete, both runner and triathlete. He has run over 150 marathons. He has completed nine Ironman competitions, including the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon, which is like the Boston of all Ironman triathlons. He has run from Medford, Oregon, to his hometown of Medford, Massachusetts, 3,452 miles. He's run up the East Coast. Every year he runs the Boston Marathon. He continues to run the Boston Marathon after everybody else is done and after putting in a full day as race director. He rides back out to Hopkinton and completes the course himself. Dave is also an author of two books, The Last Pick, his autobiography, as well as a children's book, Dream Big, A True Story of Courage and Determination. Dave himself has five children, and we are so excited to welcome him today to talk to us about all things Boston Marathon-related, running-related, and just about how this amazing experience that we are honored to have every year reflects upon humanity and life itself. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. It's very exciting to be part of this. Well, we are excited because we are not too far out from Boston now, and uh, we can't wait to be back. We are hoping for better weather than <laughs> last year, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, we are super excited. And um, you have run this race since you were 17 years old, right? Yeah, uh, officially 18, but I did try it when I was 17, and it didn't go so well. 
and then I came back when I was 18 and completed it and have done so every year since. Yep. And you have been the race director since 1988. Yes. Um, initially, I was the technical director. And then in 2001, they just flipped my title to race director. But my job responsibilities were pretty much the same. So needless to say, you have many, many years of experience running running the Boston Marathon because you still you still run it just after everybody else. Yeah. So many, many years of, of running the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Do you have any particularly, what are your most memorable years? Well, as, <clears throat> as race director or technical director, um, I think there are three of them. One is my first one. Uh, the reason why I was hired to begin with is that the year before, unfortunately, there were some incidences at the start where some runners tripped because they left a rope up um, the officials did and fired the gun and forgot to remove the rope and the runners all tripped. Oh. And uh, there was a wheelchair accident at the start and a whole bunch of them went down. And um, there was a question whether or not they should continue with the wheelchair program. So they, the BAA thought, well, maybe we should hire someone to kind of take a closer look at all this and manage it better. So they brought me in and I mean, generally speaking, all I did was remove a rope. And 32 years later, I still have the job. <laughs> um, I'm being a little facetious. But, um, but yeah, I removed the rope and put a human chain of volunteers there. We did a control stop for the wheelchairs down the first hill. And there hasn't been an incident since. So, so that was a highlight, obviously, because um, they hired me to do a job. And I, I think I got the job done. And, and then, um, you know, my career really took off from there. And then the 100th running of the Boston Marathon, where the year before we had about 7,000, 8,000 runners, and then we went up to close to 40,000 for the 100th in 1996. So operationally and logistically to try to put all that together and make sure, you know, everyone crosses the starting line before, you know, a week and a half after the gun fired um, was sort of my responsibility. Um, But that all went well. So that was a major celebration and accomplishment and then of course the year after the bombing in 2014 when we came back and you know took back Boylston Street took back the finish line and and you had an American and Meb Kofleski winning the race and it was just an epic um, uh, event that will probably never be duplicated again in the history of the industry Um, so you know it, it was just great from the perspective that it was a tribute to those who were profoundly impacted by the bombing. And, but it was also a celebration of the race itself in that, um, you know, we're not going to be denied our running freedom. And people came back from all over the world to, to sort of show that, um, you know, that we're re- resilient and, um, you know, they mess with the wrong crowd. So from a race director perspective, those uh, were the three, the three highlights of, of my 32 years of doing this. We were there in 2013 and then again in 2014, and we know we were so grateful for all you and the BAA did to make 2014 so safe and also so memorable for all the reasons you just mentioned. And it really was such a comeback for not only those participating in Boston that year, but for all runners and frankly, anyone who had any connection to what happened in 2013, whether um, just seeing it um, on television, being there, knowing someone who did run it, having that comeback year and being able to execute that, it just, 
it really was just such a testament to humanity and, and, and um, our ability as a country to come together and um, recover from something so devastating in 2013. And you were such an integral part of that. Well, again, as most people would say, you know, it was a team effort, of course. Um, you know, there's a slogan that says the comeback is always stronger than the setback. And um, nothing could be um, closer to the truth than, than that statement for that year. Um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was challenging. Of, of, of all the 30-some-odd years I've been directing, um, this one was really, really tough because of so many different dynamics in play. Everything from the world wanted to show up and express their feelings, um, whether it be participants, runners, volunteers, spectators, whatever. And it was just a daunting um, sort of sense a few months after the 2013 as to what is this going to be? You know, how can we can crystallize this, conceptualize what 2014 is going to look like? We can't accept everybody who wants to be here. There would have been 100,000 runners. So we have to just kind of figure it all out, you know, and then, and then secondly, just the, the level of security, obviously just, just catapulted. And, you know, we were, or I was anyways, trying to determine whether or not they were going to build security around the race. Uh, we had to build the race around security. And as it turned out, in my opinion, we had to sort of make a lot of changes to the race to accommodate the necessary security changes. So it was, it was like starting all over again, even though we had a hundred plus years under our belt, no one really knew what we could or couldn't do until we got really, really close. It was almost like a three month effort, not a 12 month effort because until security determined exactly what they were going to do, we really couldn't build the infrastructure of the race um, until, until late in the game. So, it, and then you add, add on an extra layer. You know, we had another 9,000 runners and then all the tributes. It was, it was challenging, but, um, but it, it just, it, it could, you could not have written a better script and ending to such a, a tragic situation that occurred that, the year before. Absolutely not. You're right. The comeback was, 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 but was, was the ultimate yeah. The ultimate redemption. And, and you talked about changes. And I think in our minds, we think a lot about pre-2013 and post-2013. And my first race was in 2001. And I still remember it was a noon start. Uh, there were maybe 10 or 12,000 runners. You could book your hotel up until the week before. You could register until the week before. And there have been so many changes just in the time we've been running the race. And you know, particularly since you've been running it even longer, you've seen more. But in the number of people, the security, registration, I mean, even the, the I remember the shirts were all unisex uh, cotton shirts. So now we get, yeah. we get uh, gender-specific technical right. shirts. There have been so many changes. Um, what, what are the... What are the changes that you see moving forward towards 2019 and beyond? What do you think are going to be the biggest changes to the race? Well, <clears throat> what's interesting about the Boston Marathon is, is certainly our history and our tradition. And, um, yeah, I would agree that there have been a lot of changes for sure, but there's been an awful lot of things that have remained the same, too. And the reason being is because that's who we are. And, you know, the course really hasn't changed and it's always been on the Monday and, 
you know, so forth and so on. And um, I, I don't think that the BAA wants to tamper with the things that are, are working and the things that people, you know, come here for. That being said, you have to keep up with the times. And um, interestingly, you know, when, when they began the race and it started at noon, it did for a specific reason. That's when the trains ran and that's how the runners get out to the start. And you couldn't start any earlier because huh. the trains wouldn't bring them out there any earlier. And, and then when we decided to change the starting time from noon to, to, to 10, people said, well, you know, you're, you're going against tradition. And I said, well, we're just going to start a new one, you know, and it doesn't make any sense in today's day and age to start a marathon at, at noontime. It, it, for, it, for all the, wrong reasons that's going on and we got to fix this and and so it's been interesting to sort of you know put the race under a microscope and really hone in on those areas that sort of were what they were because of certain situations back then but things have changed and now we have to be um not be not be intimidated by making appropriate changes so that it's better for everyone involved um we appreciate we appreciate that you move the start time to 10, especially in 2012. 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And I, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd move it to eight or earlier than 10 for obvious reasons, like 2012. And the medical committee um, supports that wholeheartedly. The problem is that our race is on a Monday and um, it's a, it's a, you know, used to be a strong holiday. Now it's not as strong. So, you know, 90% of the people who live along the course go to work. And, you know, you can't just paralyze the communities and not think of them, too. Um, so that to shut down the city of Boston so the race can come through at eight in the morning when people are trying to get to from point A to point B is, you know, it's a, it's a little bit, a little bit reckless to do that. So anyways, so it's a it's a you know, it's a delicate balance between, you know, trying to take care of all the constituencies that are intimately involved in this thing you know it if i you know i didn't design this course obviously because designed 130 years ago practically but if i find the person who did i'm going to wring their neck because um <laughs> it's limited you know, your real I'm, estate right <laughs> well yeah i mean it's you know it's in a small little town it's a point to point i mean you know in today's day and age everything about boston i probably never duplicate in another marathon i was designing only because there's it's very complex you know, and there's a lot of, um, you know, inconveniences to, to, to the runners, to the spectators, to the media, to everyone because of how it's all laid out. But therein lies the beauty of it, too. Right. And people don't want us to touch it because it historically that's what it's been. So um, so we deal with what we can deal with. I mean, I have thirty nine feet width for the starting line. New York City has 17 lanes on the triple decker bridge called the Verrazano, you know, New York, uh, Chicago has these wide open streets like highways. We got 39 feet. And we, so we have no more real estate today to put 30,000 people that they had a hundred years ago when they had 200. But Boston has the best spectators. And even though it's only 39 feet, Boston boasts the net downhill and New York certainly doesn't have that. So there you go in terms of comparison. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting about the spectators, and that's probably the first thing that people do mention when they write us after the race is like, oh, I, you know, the, the spectators were, were the ones who kept, you know, there are, you know, sixth man on the court, if you will, or whatever. 
And, um, you know, they're, 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 the beauty about our spectator base is the fact that we run through residential communities. As a result, people just step out their front door and, you know, they've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It's generation to generation. And so they're the most knowledgeable, experienced spectators on the planet because they, too, have been here for so many. So they know what works. They're not going to say to a runner, hey, keep going. You look great if they don't look great. You know, Truth. or they're going to say, you're almost there when there's five miles. To go. <laughs> I am not. They're, I am not almost there. They're educated you know? spectators. They're, they're educated spectators. So that works in our favor. When when the 2012 race came along and we had the heat, what was interesting for me when I ran the course later on that night is that um, I saw so much trash along the course and I saw 16 liter water bottles and I saw pops of sticks uh, and I saw this and I saw that and plastic bags that ice had been in. What happened was the spectators went and bought water and bought popsicles and bought, you know, and they were out there <clears throat> handing all that stuff to the run. They came so out they, with their hoses. They were great. Everything, everything. So they supported our, you know, conventional effort of water stations every mile and supported the runners too. So they're part of the team as well as, you know, the volunteer, the 10,000 volunteers and everyone else involved. Absolutely. And we, we really noticed the educated and wonderful spectators last year in 2018 when the weather was dreadful. And yet there were so many people out freezing and volunteers and, vo and volunteers watching. And so that brings us to 2018. What are your thoughts about that race one year later? Would you have done anything differently or yeah. what do you think? Well, you have to think about it from a couple of perspectives. Number one, it wasn't, <clears throat> it, in my opinion, it was a miserable day and it was very challenging, but I, I didn't personally look at it as being what I would consider quote unquote dangerous not like the heat of 2012. That was borderline like, whoa. You know, people could get, you know, if someone had heat stroke, that's dangerous. Someone have hypothermia, that's not necessarily dangerous. It's uncomfortable, but it's probably, you're not going to succumb to it, you know, type thing. So there wasn't a strong sense of like, should we cancel this thing? What there was a strong sense for was, um, you know, communicating to all the runners to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to take personal responsibility for themselves. You know, I stood up on the status platform last year and in 2012, and I said one thing. I said, listen, there's 30,000 of you and only a handful of us. I can't fit 30,000 of you in the medical tent. <laughs> so you have to take care of yourself. You have to back off. You have to, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. You have to make sure you dress properly. If you get in trouble, it's you know, not to be disparaging or negative, but it's probably your own fault because there's plenty of other people who don't because they take personal responsibility, right? So these are the things we're thinking about. But that aside, um, what people on the outside looking in don't really consider, it's not just about the runners. Yeah, they're important, but they're not the only ones involved. What I was more concerned about were all the volunteers, 10,000, the staff out there doing their jobs, on lead vehicles, getting frozen. We had as many people, so it seemed, volunteers and staff in the medical tent last year recovering from the cold than we did runners. Wow. The runners are moving. 
Right. The volunteers are standing there for eight hours. Handing, handing out, out water, water, getting water all over the man. Right, right. So when you're thinking about whether it should be a go or no go or the assets that you have and the resources you have for your event, you can't just be thinking about the runners. There's, there's 10,000 volunteers. There's, you know, staff and consultants and vendors and all that stuff. There's thousands of them. You know, there's 500,000 spectators. And even though we don't, we're not responsible per se for them, they did come to our event. Something were to happen to them, the cities and towns have to respond and take care of them. And so you could have ER emergency rooms full. So then a hospital goes on diversion. And then a resident in the community, if they go down, they can't go into their own emergency room because mm-hmm. we got too many runners. All these things have to be thought about and planned for before you decide to shoot the gun. That is, that's a lot to consider. And you're right. I think somebody looking from the outside would, would not consider that. What, what keeps you up at night, the night before the race, or the <laughs> week before the race? I mean, that makes me think of so many things that we probably don't even realize. Are, are, is there something in particular at this point that, that you think about that keeps you up at night? Yeah, one thing, pretty much all the time, my alarm not going <laughs> <laughs> Set several. <laughs> yeah, like I said 23 alarms. Um, <laughs> usually, like, during the summer or every year, maybe once a year I have the nightmare that I slept through uh-huh. whatever, and uh, everyone's looking for me at the start. Well, that's good because that means you sleep. You actually do sleep the night <laughs> no, before. not so. that much, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, nothing really. Nothing keeps me up. I mean, if anything does, it's just the weather. You know, last year it wasn't pleasant. In 2012, it wasn't pleasant. In 2007, it wasn't pleasant. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess you could, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not worried. I'm anxious, you know, because I just, you, you just don't know what's going to happen, right? And it's over 26 miles. It's not like it's a beach volleyball tournament <laughs> where you could stand there and see the whole venue and make decisions and move things around and put cover over it or whatever. It's all over the place. And when you think about the Boston Marathon being a point to point and where our first race starts at like 930 in the morning and the last person crosses the starting line at 1130, that's two hours difference. So someone might say, well, if the temperature reaches a certain temperature, then you should cancel the race. Well, when? What time of day are you talking about and where in Hopkinton, in Boston, along the course? Because it's all different folks. And so, you know, we have to be thinking about it's such a moving target. And so it's not always just cut and dry, black and white, making decisions, right? So a lot of these things, if you, to use the phraseology, keep me up at night, these are the things I'm always, I'm not worried. What I'm doing is I'm visualizing and I'm playing out all different scenarios, the what ifs, the tabletop exercises, the hypotheticals. If this would have happened, what would I do? If that would have happened, what would I do? So as I'm like in the moment and as I'm right up against it, that's when you know, okay, with these aren't projections, these aren't forecasts, these are real. You go walk outside and you look up in the sky and it's happening, folks. So now what are you going to do now? Right. You On know? top of and all so, that is the, is the uncertainty of the forecast. You know, they can call for one thing the night before and it can be something when you wake up in the well, morning. And that's the whole thing. It's, I always use the phrase, you know, the forecast is right too often to deny and, and not rely on and, and, and wrong too often to... <laughs> to plan for, you know, so, um, you you just, you just, you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So not only have you been so prepared as a race director, but obviously because you've been running the race since you were 17, we know you said you didn't finish the first time, but it it still counts to us. Um, Uh 
What advice would you give to those runners coming to Boston for the first time this year? Well, <clears throat> I guess you could come from two different sectors. One is you qualified and you're running as a qualified participant, meaning you have, you know, obviously a lot of marathon experience or some, or you might come in on a special limitation as a charity runner or whatever, and maybe have never run a marathon. So those approaches are very different. Um, but generally speaking, you know, what I, I try to do, especially if it's your first time, is <clears throat> try not to put a lot of pressure on yourself to perform and set PRs and all that. To, to run the Boston Marathon course fast, you have to know it. And to know it means you have to have trained on it, in my opinion. Um, a lot of people have run Boston one and done. They've destroyed themselves because of, you know, the undulation, the, the severe downhill, all those kinds of things. So, um, so my recommendation is to come and enjoy it. You know, use another race as your qualifying race to get here. But once you're here, try to enjoy it. You know, back off a little bit. Don't put a lot of pressure on yourself. Go out slow. You know, just take it all in. You know, have it be an experience versus a competition. I, I know that's easier said than done because it's human nature as runners. Once the gun fires, we're all competitors and we want to run as fast as we possibly can <laughs> and have the best possible time. So we can tell everyone I ran a such and such time. I get that. But the, 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 the flaw or the mistake most people make, especially those who have never been here before, is they get sucked into running the first half faster than they probably should. They haven't trained running downhill much they only they hear about hills so they train running uphill but they don't train running downhill to get your quads conditioned for that kind of pounding so once they do get to the uphills you know their you know their legs are toast and then they're doing the survivor shuffle the last five or six survivor miles survivor shuffle what, that's great yeah <laughs> what 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 began is a you know you're you're running and you're you know you're setting a record or you're having a great day or you're hitting your splits and all of a sudden it comes to a crashing halt in a in a, in a step because it's just, you just fried yourself, you know? And so patience, holding back, running negative splits. The best times that I've ever been run on the Boston Marathon course are negative splits. Even though a case can be made the first half is faster than the second half, those who have run this course the fastest have run the second half faster than the first because they conserve in the first half. They haven't let the downhills beat them up. And then they have enough in the tank to run the second half faster and they pop a good time. That's great advice, um, not only for first time Boston marathoners, but for veterans. It's just you hearing you say it. It's such a great reminder to all those listening that even though it's such a wonderful neck downhill 13.1, if you can take it slow and have some control, you will actually do much better in the race overall, even though the second half is hillier. Yeah. I've run my, my P I've run 155 marathons and my personal best is Boston. Wow. Cause I know, you know, I know the course, <laughs> you know, I've run it 46 times. And well, I've run, I probably run the, the title, the entire distance from Hopkins to Boston. I'd probably run it 80 or 90 times because I, I run it for training runs or I, I ran it on my, I run my age and my birthday. And so I run the whole marathon course on my, you know, when I run my age and my birthday, I run it. Whatever. Anyway, so I run it. I run it a lot. So I, I kind of. And didn't you know, run it blindfolded one time? Yeah, I ran it for the Carolson for the blind. Right. I ran th three hours, fourteen minutes blindfolded, and <laughs> I tell I tell everyone that I could. I was in much better shape, but the two guys 
that were guiding me couldn't run any faster. So I, oh, I was <laughs> they told, held you back. They held me back. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you run, so you run it blindfolded. You, you could probably run it, in, you know, with your eyes closed at this point. Do you have a favorite section of the course? Yeah, the last 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd all agree with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is, is there is every, every sector, if you will, has its charm, you know, and, and its character. There's, there's no real favorite. It, it's, you know, I, this Hopkinton in the town and then running through Ashland and Natick. And, you know, it all had your Wellesley with the college and halfway point. And then your Newton in the hills and yada yada and Heartbreak and Johnny Kelly and all that. And then, Common, you know, Beacon Street and then Fenway Park and the finish line. So there's so much there to sort of take your attention away and, and, you know, distract you from the pain you might be experiencing. And, and that's why I say, just take it all in, you know, read a book about the Boston Marathon. Then when you're running it, go, oh, yeah, I remember that part. And, oh yeah, Johnny Kelly, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's just a really fun experience. Check yourself out in the reflection of the, of the, all, you know, all, all the good, all the good that's tips. Right. Yeah. In the hardware store. Yeah. So you, you mentioned um, very casually that your PR is on the Boston course. Uh, that PR is, is it 229? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And would you mind um, telling our listeners who don't know, who'd you train with that year when you achieved that 229? Oh, I had just finished, I was 78. So I had, I, I didn't train with it. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I, um, joined the Greater Boston Track Club. I ran across the country in 1978 from Medford, Oregon and Medford, Mass. So I was running almost 50 miles every day for 80 consecutive days across America. So by the time I got done, I guess a case can be made. Uh, my coach afterwards, uh, Coach uh, Bill Squires, said, well, it looks like you've got your, 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 your long workouts in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he says, got to get you on the track and get some speed going. I said, okay, fine. Um, and then I, I, just be, I, I just became really, really fit, you know, after I had done that run across the country. So I joined the Greater Boston Track Club and, you know, there were, it was the best track club in, in the United States at the time and Bill Rogers <laughs> and, you know, all these guys. And, and so there was first tier guys who were, you know, 210, 209, 210, 211, 212 guys. And then you had the second tier who were, you know, 215 to 220 and then the rest of us slugs who were like two thirty ish or so, <laughs> you know, and, and, but, but, you know, running with, the, running with people who are much faster than you really makes you faster. Right. And so it was infectious back then. I mean, we were, we were very, very, very competitive back then. Um, very, I mean, not that, not that runners are competitive today. They are, but it was a different mindset back then. I mean, I finished two twenty nine and finished like a hundred and, 60th in Boston. Wow. If you do 229 now, you'll finish 50th. Yeah. You know, so the depth back then in the 70s huh. and 80s was much greater on the upper end of the spectrum than 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 that than exists today. It's really interesting you say that because running has grown clearly from being a competitive sport to also so much of a participatory sport. That's right. And it's funny because while you were in that competitive upper echelon, your whole life story is about participation and your your mission for your company, uh, DMSE, is about developing self-esteem. So I think it's really interesting that you still have that mission, even though you were part of that upper echelon competitive running culture. Yeah, I mean, good observation. You you did your homework. (laughs) Um, What was interesting back after I had finished running across the country, 
I um, opened up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown. Then I started putting on events to promote the store. And then I realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet. So I, I sold the store and I was working for Saucony Running Shoes at the time as their director of promotions. And I left Saucony and just really started putting all my energy into my own business. And people would say to me with a weird look, like, you really think you're going to earn a li- living and make money putting on road races? And I, I'd look at them and I said, well, that's where you're wrong. What do you mean I'm wrong? I said, I'm not just putting on road races. Well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm helping to raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And they go, what are you talking about? I said, you'll see. And I knew then I had this vision that eventually people were going to get it. They were going to get off the couch. The walls of intimidation would crumble. Uh, It all started with uh, philanthropy when people started, you know, combining a a greater purpose for getting out the door. That was the initiator. You know, you know, instead of being intimidated, they were motivated by a greater cause than themselves to get out there and and do it for somebody else, not themselves. And then, it, then they crossed the finish line, got the medal, went home and felt good about themselves and said, I'm going to keep doing this. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And that's sort of what you see today. So we're fortunate in today's environment, uh, I as a race director am, that we have the front end. we got very competitive athletes. We have the, the middle group, which is all the age groupers that are vying for, you know, they're very competitive, but, you know, they're age groupers. And then you have, the rest, which are those who are just out there mainly for health and fitness and social and philanthropy and a whole bunch of other reasons other than to be competitive with everyone in the race. Yeah, I think I think what they all have in common, though, is that running has brought them this sense of accomplishment, goal, set a goal, do the work, achieve yeah. it, no matter what your background is. And, and both yeah. both Julie and I love love your book and your life story. You know, your book, The Last Pick. Uh, we both uh-huh. experienced that ourselves our, our friends are, we have family and friends and um, lots of our runners who have that, had that same feeling of when they were younger, not being able to find a, something they were really good at and running, yeah. giving them something that they could set that goal, achieve it. And I'm sure you see that in spades. Every time you line up, you, you stand in front of any runners at any of your races, but particularly the Boston marathon. And you look out in all those faces of those people who are there for a reason that they have some, yeah this is such an important defining moment in their life, whether it be their first 5k or their 10th or 20th Boston marathon. So yeah. um, I, I'm sure you know this, but, but you are, what you're doing is, is the events that you're, you're directing and giving that opportunity to people really, really changes, changes their lives. And I, I'm curious to know as the, as the field of, I know you said, you know, the, that upper echelon is now not as deep, but clearly, I mean, I remember when, when I would start, uh, many years ago, and my qualifying time was about what it is now, and my bib number was really, really low. And as I've yeah. gotten, as the years have gone by, my qualifying time is about the same, but my bib number keeps moving <laughs> higher and yeah. higher. So clearly, there are more people, and and clearly, what we've seen with you know with registration selling out and having to go to a different registration system and changing the qualifying times, more people are, are qualifying. And and why do you think why do you think that's happening? Is it is it Boston? Is it more people are running? More people are running fast? What's What's uh, well, happening? I mean, I think it's all of the above and then some. Um, certainly Boston is the holy grail. I, I mean, it's the only marathon in the world for the most part. I mean, you can qualify for New York and qualify for the Olympic trials and qualify for the Olympics. But generally speaking, Boston is, you know, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the, the Kentucky Derby, the Tour de France to to our industry. Um, and it's 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 something that people who, you know, have that ability level and a close <clears throat> shoot for 
And what can be better than that to sort of say, hey, I, I made it to the Holy Grail, right? right? Even if you don't run it, you know, the goal is to qualify for it at some point in time. So, so what's interesting about the qualifying standards is that they were put in place over 30 years ago, mainly to control the field size because the race then was growing too much because it was the only marathon around. So they had over a thousand runners in it and they were like, whoa, this is getting too big. We got to control the field size. And they imposed a qualifying standard. And all of a sudden the qualifying standard then became the magnet to attract <laughs> even more interest. So it almost a victim of your own, <laughs> you're a victim of your own success. Yeah. Right. So so, but, but, but that's been in place ever since. And so we can open and close, squeeze and tighten whatever the qualifying time based on what the marketplace is telling us. And that's what we just did. We, you know, we, we had, we accepted, um, we, we, we had, we turned away 7,000 runners this past year who made, who, who qualified. And so no, no longer now can you run a race across the finish line make the standard and say, I'm in. No, you've qualified, gives you the right to apply. But until everyone applies, like applying for for college, you don't know whether you're in or not until we ping you against the rest of the marketplace and only the best of the best get in. And that's okay because we're we're unique. We're about the pursuit of athletic excellence. That's what at least 80% of the field is, 20% is more charity and giving back and all that. But 80% is qualified runners, but you have to make the cut. And that's what makes it so special. So (laughs) Yeah, and that's why we squeezed the times a little bit this past year by five minutes because, I mean, I don't want someone to cross the finish line of a race and then have to wait nine months or whatever and to see if they're in. Um, So we, we, and and then turn them away. So by squeezing the times, maybe less people qualify. I know it sounds cruel, but they're not going to get in anyways. You know, so I'd rather have them not qualify and and disappoint themselves than qualify and then have us disappoint them by saying, sorry, you didn't make the cut. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, It also makes sense because it's it's less of a moving target when the decision is made for you before you tow the start line at a potential qualifying race. That's smart. Right. It makes sense. So uh, you mentioned earlier how many times you've run Boston, how many times you've run marathons. You've done the Seven Continents um, Challenge, which Michael Wardian just finished and won. Yeah. And our question to you, your longevity in running is, is quite amazing. What advice do you have to runners to sustain the, the success and longevity that you've had? Um, I know it sounds cliche but listen to your body. I, I, I guess, you know, I've always felt there's two types of pain. There's wanting pain and challenging pain. And, you know, it's the experienced athlete that can differentiate between the two. Because if you, if you start challenging the wanting pain, you're going to get in trouble. And if you don't back off and take care of yourself and go through appropriate maintenance programs and all that, if you don't have a good sense for the right pair of shoes to wear, footwear, if you don't have a right sense for how much is too much and, and um, what you should be running on and what you shouldn't be running on and what you should be eating and not eat. If you don't have a sense for all of that, eventually this is all going to catch up and it's going to get to the point where all of a sudden things are going to start breaking down and you're out. You're out of the game. And for me, I'm fortunate. Number one is I'm low to the ground. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of impact. Two is, I think, biomechanically, um, I'm put together. 
pretty well so that I'm not all over the map in terms of, you know, pronation, supernation, you know, all that kind of stuff that my gait cycle and everything else is, is, is good in that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting a lot of stress on undue stress on certain areas of the body where a lot of people do. Um, I do think, even though, you know, I, I don't want to call the kettle black, but even though I've done a lot of, you know, crazy events, you know, running up these coasts, running across the country twice, doing 777, running my age on my birthday, and a case could be made that this guy's should go into the loony bin because he's just <laughs> crazy. doing way too much. I like to say crazy but, is just a word that yeah, the lazy you know, used to describe the dedicated. <laughs> well, I, you know, you just m- mentioned Michael and you know, I, he and I are really good friends and I look at what he does and, you know, when I see what he does and I look at what I did, I have done, I'm like, I've done nothing compared to what he's done. And I'm saying, how the heck is that body, you know, continuing? How is he able to survive? You know, and he takes care of himself. You see him all the time doing all these different exercises and stretching and he's doing all the right things. So that's the big, I think that's longevity. I think it, it isn't just about going out and banging out miles. It's about everything you do between each training run. It, it, that's really what keeps you going um, more than anything else. You know, it's all the maintenance stuff. Oh, um, we love that so, you said that because yeah. this is, it's the little things that add up, especially yeah. after you hit masters running. It's so important yeah. to listen. And speaking of listening to your body, we would be remiss if we didn't talk for a few minutes, if you will indulge us about um, mm-hmm. your heart. And yeah. would you mind telling our listeners no. your history and what happened? Because we really believe your story could potentially save a few lives. Yeah. Well, um, uh, so five, six years ago, out running, could feel some stress in my chest and difficulty breathing when I began my workouts. And I thought, okay, I woke up on the wrong side of bed. I tied my shoes wrong. I ate, I ate a rotten apple the night before, whatever. <laughs> and I just dismissed it because it's something I didn't do something right. And it just was persistent, persistent. And I said, I better get this checked. Went in, <clears throat> Mass General had all these tests done, stress tests, eco- echocardiograms, <clears throat> all kinds of things. And the doctors all said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. I said, yes, there is. I can't breathe when I'm running. So there is something wrong. So I knew my own body. I knew that something wasn't working well. So I said, you got to give me the big boy tests and, you know, look under the hood here, guys. And <laughs> let's take a deeper dive. And so they did the CAT scan, the angiogram, and the doctors come in and they go, whoa, they go here, 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 and here. I said, here, what? And they go, you have severe coronary artery disease. Wow. I said, how can I have the severe coronary artery disease? I've run 150,000 miles and over 100 marathons and Ironman triathlon. I mean, ha. Huh? And they go, well, you do. And whether it's genetics or self-inflicted or combo, you got it. And I said, well, it's probably a combo. I probably broke a lot of rules. I must admit, guilty as charged. You know, eating the wrong stuff, not getting enough sleep, sleep's overrated, stress, all of it just added up over 50 some odd years. And I said, well, one question I have is, is this reversible? And they said, it depends. And I said, depends on what? And they said, depends on the person. And I said, well, you're looking at them, you know, what about, you know, and they said, well, you, with your discipline, you do the right thing, you make some appropriate changes. Yeah, you could probably have an impact in your own illness. I said, sign me up. So I went on a tear and I changed everything, my diet, nutrition, I you know, basically just cut out all the bad stuff. No more fun, guys. This is just going to put only good fuel in, not bad fuel. And I did. And about six months later, I lost 27 pounds, lost 100 points on my cholesterol level and reversed my own coronary artery disease wow. by over 40%. Then I went back into the Ironman and did the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. 
in um, October of 2014, a year later, and, um, you know, did it and finished and thought, I beat it. I beat it. So in 2015 and 16, I thought, okay, everything's fine. I was feeling good. I wasn't having difficulty breathing anymore. And I fixed my own illness. And then I did 777. I felt okay on that, you know, no problems doing the runs and stuff. And then got home and in February of this past year, and all of a sudden I was out running again and I could feel the difficulty breathing again. I said, what the heck is this? And went and had an angiogram again. And they said, you know, unfortunately your main artery is blocked 80, 90%. I said, I thought I reversed it. And they said, yeah, you reversed all this over here, but the main artery, no. And I said, so what are my choices? And they said, well, you don't have very many choices here. So I had open heart triple bypass surgery four months ago. And, um, you know, I went to my heart surgeon right before the surgery. And I said, I have one question for you. And he said, what? I said, well, there's this little jogathon in, in Boston in April. And <laughs> I've shuffled through it a few times. And I'm wondering, you know, if you do this surgery on me, do you think I might be able to kind of get myself from Hopkins to Boston again in April? He said, he gave me the great, best possible answer a doctor could give someone. And he didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. But what he did say was, I would be extremely disappointed if you couldn't. <laughs> and I went, whoa, okay, I'm, gonna take, I'm taking that one to the bank. And so that's what I've been banking on, right? And so I've been trying to be patient and doing what, you know, everyone has a curve, right? And this, what's the normal curve? Well, I don't want the normal one. I want the above normal one. And, <laughs> and I want to be, be careful not to be foolish and reckless and push it too much and then end, end up back in the hospital. So it's been a very difficult experience over the last four or five months. And a delicate balance between, you know, backing off a little bit, being patient, but getting the work in that I need to get in so I can be ready for April. So this past Sunday, I ran a half marathon. That's the furthest I've run since the surgery. And I got through that okay. Fantastic. And so We saw you set you a know, world record PR. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it gave me my time. And it was like so silly. You know, I was first place and ran 26 minutes for a half marathon. Underscoring <laughs> the importance of accurate results. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought, well, maybe they put a couple of new extra hearts in my body. And I didn't know <laughs> it. I'm, I'm a, now I'm this bionic guy. Anyway, so so I guess the the the... the the mission now that I'm on is awareness is, is letting people know, especially athletes who I think are the most vulnerable because they're in denial all the time is that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. And there's a slogan in Massachusetts public safety. It says, if you see something, say something. My new slogan is if you feel something, do something, you know, you can only save yourself. And the most important person on the planet is you. And you can't help anyone. You can't give back if you're not around. So don't think it's unselfish to go for a run. Don't think it's unselfish to check in with the doctor. It's not. Um, I mean, it's not selfish to do that. It's, it's, it's unselfish to do it. So the whole idea is to take care of yourself. Pay attention to your body, you know, and, and do something if, if you feel something's not right. That's, that's great advice, especially, like you said, for runners like ourselves who are in denial a lot. We think we're healthy. A lot of us, like you, have kids and busy lives, and we don't usually take the time to, to go to the yes. doctor or, or listen to our bodies. So that's really great advice. And like Julie said, I think your story could save a, a few lives for just tuning people into those, those cues. So we right. appreciate you sharing that. And we so appreciate you sharing 
everything. You're just, you're such an inspiration to so many of us. And we're so grateful that you were able to take the time during this crunch time, six weeks before Boston <laughs> to speak with us. Is there anything else that we may have missed that you want to share with our listeners who are heading up to Boston? No, only that, you know, we're all in this thing together. Um, I'm, I'm just Dave. Um, no one any special. We're, we're all human interest stories. Anytime I get a mic and I'm standing on a stage and I'm looking at an audience of 200 people, I say each and every one of you could be standing up here too, telling your own story. We all have inspirational stories and motivational stories about our lives and what we've done and so forth. So the idea is to, uh, you know, continue to set goals, not limits. And, um, you know, the worst injustice you could ever do to yourself is to underestimate your own ability level. Um, so there's a lot of lessons I've learned through all the different runs that I've done. There's always something I, I take little nuggets of wisdom out of it. Um, and the biggest lesson I've learned, you know, through all of this is that no matter where in this country, my car breaks down, I'll be able to run home. <laughs> yes, you will. Bada bing, bada bang. So. That's right. Well, thank you all so right. much, Dave. And we wish you all the best as you head toward the home stretch to the finish thank line you. of the Boston Marathon. Take care. Excellent. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.